Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and Ward Richmond here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's episode. Today's show, we're continuing our Supply Chain Real Estate Series. Uh, we got a ton of great feedback from the first episode of this newly reinvigorated series, didn't we, Ward? Yes, sir, Scott. It's a pleasure to be back with you. I, I'm hopeful I can come down to Atlanta and see you for the, the next one of these. So we're going to have to make it happen. But yeah, great feedback from from our first episode. It's amazing having Prologis on board as our sponsor and um, really excited to tell everyone what's happening today. Well, you know, if you're going to do a supply chain real estate series, you might as well do it with one of the heaviest hitters being Prologis. And of course, we get a double dip because I get to co-host along with Ward Richmond. So we're teed up for a great conversation here in the second installment of the 2021 Supply Chain Real Estate Series right here on Supply Chain Now. So, Ward, are you ready? We're going to introduce our guests. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. No Dallas Cowboys talk here today, Ward, okay? Is that a deal? I don't know. I think we have uh, multiple <laughs> Dallas Cowboys fans on the podcast today, so I'm not even <laughs> They'll come up. Football will come up, I'm we're sure. We're talking about it right now, so. So with no further ado, I want to welcome in uh, a couple of guests. We've had a chance and and really have enjoyed the opportunity to chat with pre-show and of course share their uh, POV with you here today. We got Kim Snyder, president U.S. West region with Prologis. How are you doing, Kim? Good. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. And I love, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you may not be able to see it, check out the video replay, but we've got a beautiful train station back behind Kim because as as, as he came on, I said, hey, I love that concert hall. He goes, I'm in supply chain. This is a train station, Scott. So I love, I love that, Kim. Great to have you here. And you're joined by Stephen Hussein, Vice President, Workforce Programs and Community Relations, also with Prologis. Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. As I mentioned, uh, your ears were definitely burning uh, on, on a Friday pre-call. And we're excited. Kim and Stephen Ward kind of bring a very complimentary and holistic overview of what's going on in industry, real estate and otherwise. And that, that kind of goes with the territory of what they do there, Prologis, right, Ward? That's right. Yeah. And I'm really excited to hear the perspective from both Kim and Stephen today. And I think we're going to start looking at the supply chain real estate market as a whole, and then move all the way over to the other side of the spectrum, uh, just talking about what it's like to manage the culture of a massive global organization that that also only functions because of its street level intelligence. And uh, can't wait to get into all of that. Very nice, Ward. Coming attractions. Very nice little touch there, Ward. I, I um, well, <laughs> before we get into kind of a one-two punch from a market update, let's get to know Kim and Steve a little bit better. And Kim, let's start with you. You know, we really enjoyed the, the uh, prep conversation earlier, get, get to know you better and, and where you've been and some of your thoughts. But for starters, you know, tell our listeners a little about yourself. Well, so uh, I'm Kim Snyder. I have uh, been with Prologis since 2005. I was one of the uh, AMB alumni, went through the merger in 2011 with Prologis. And I've been involved in uh, a variety of locations uh, organizationally, you know, the, the West as a whole, the Southwest for a period of time. I worked in the airport group and uh, Mexico. And of course, we started up a Brazilian operation with my comrade, uh, Nick Kittredge. So I uh, had a pretty interesting experience here. I've seen the ups and downs and uh, we're definitely in the ups stage right now. It's fascinating to watch this sort of environment we're in. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And it sort of breaks down a lot of the, the old school learning that you, know, you spend your career accumulating all this data and then it goes out the window just overnight with sort of the last 90 days, uh, it, you know, a whole new paradigm set we're dealing with. So it's exciting time to be in this industry. It's not without some challenges, but uh, we're all sort of making adaptation. And I think that's sort of the key to success going forward. Love that. And and how how true. One quick follow-up question on the personal side. Where did you grow up? So I'm uh, originally from Pennsylvania. Uh, my dad was a professor. So we moved a lot to different universities across the U.S., uh, from, you know, Pennsylvania to New Jersey, 
to Illinois, to back to Ann Arbor, and then finally to Tempe, Arizona, where we stayed for a little while. So I lived in Tempe, Arizona, probably for about 15 years before I moved to Los Angeles. So I have uh, a lot of roots still in, in Arizona. I go back there quite frequently. And, uh, but I've been here in Southern California now for uh, 30 plus years. It almost makes me a native. I'm just that close. So you were really born to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on across the country and then some. So I, l- I love that, Kim. Okay, let's switch over to Stephen Hussein. So uh, Stephen, same question for you. Let's give our listeners a little bit of uh, your background. So tell us about yourself. Yeah, so been with uh, Prologis a couple of years now and have the pleasure to work with folks like Kim every single day and, and work with our customers and uh, the broader supply chain industry. My background is actually in the, the public sector. So I came from the city of San Antonio and I had experience uh, in the nonprofit sector. I specialize in economic and workforce development and really think about you know, how does the public sector really work with the private sector and vice versa to build out sustainable solutions over the long term for pretty complex problems. So background in political science, uh, thought I'd go to law school. So that was absolutely a terrible idea. So didn't do that, which <laughs> never been, never regretted. And uh, yeah, really, really just uh, enjoying my time at, at Prologis. Wonderful. And I said, we're not going to talk football, but you're one of our resident Cowboy fans. But where did, where did you grow up, Stephen, as well? Yeah, I grew up in Texas. So uh, I lived in Dallas for a while, lived in San Antonio, and then kind of back and forth and uh, really spent the last decade in in, uh, in San Antonio. But now uh, I'm here in Dallas and, uh, you know, you have to support the Cowboys as painful, oh, yeah. as, it can be. as painful as it can be. You have to do it. <laughs> well, I spent a little time in Texas, courtesy of the Air Force at Lackland in San Antonio and at Wichita Falls at Shepherd. So good times. Very hot yes. back then. Okay. Well, Stephen and Kim, welcome to you both. I think Ward next, we're going to kind of start diving into our POV, right? Uh, yeah, let's get going. And yeah, so I, I think this podcast uh, revolves around supply chain real estate and uh, we set it up on a quarterly basis. So it's now just past the mid-year point, as we all know. And I know numbers are still trickling in. And uh, Kim, do you want to uh, give us a rundown on what you're seeing in terms of general market activity in the U.S.? And I, I know you're on the West Coast, too. So if you want to give us some insight into the micro of uh, the Western region, but also your overall view of the U.S. as a whole, I'd love to hear what's what your perspective is and this, uh, what is really just a booming market, right? Sure. Let me uh, just sort of start off with a qualifier. We actually report earnings next week. So if it sounds like I'm being a little uh, careful in my words, uh, you'll understand a little bit of my disclosures. But as a uh, economy as a whole, the US is on fire. I mean, just tremendous momentum on leasing. I use the phrase a little bit of a snapback economy uh, moment we're in, to the extent that we've been dormant for a while, not as much activity. Although in the first half of this year, we've seen almost 200 million feet of logistics supply being absorbed on us on a gross basis. So that's a healthy, healthy snapback, if you would. And I think it's broad, it's across all markets. You know, I think about this time last year, you know, I, I was worried. <laughs> uh, it looked pretty bleak in certain markets. Uh, supply had gone crazy in, in Houston, for example. And you think about where Houston is today compared to where it was before. I think there's almost, almost 12 million feet absorbed uh, year to date in Houston. That's, That's huge, right? Really? And uh, think about where that was a year ago, just as a frame of reference. And in in, in Dallas, you know, we, we had talked about this uh, uh, a little bit earlier that it's just been remarkable. You know, the volume, I think, and I might have had my numbers reversed there. It's actually 11.9 million. Wow. I, this quarter? I mean, come on, or is it, or is that year to date? Maybe you guys know better. No, than no, me, I, I believe it was, that was the first quarter for sure. And I don't have the second quarter numbers, but I'm told Dallas is going to be leading the U.S., DFW that is leading the U.S. And that it, it'll actually be double that of what Inland Empire did in absorption um, this quarter. This is where I was going too, because yeah. like uh, living in Southern California, Inland Empire was the first market I really got involved with in terms of industrial real estate. You know, we had a, a, just a tepid 4.6 million feet absorbed in the Inland Empire compared to Dallas, <laughs> double that. It's just pretty impressive actually. Wow. So we, not that we're competitive about this stuff. I mean, we kind of talk about that, uh, you know, uh, carefully, but uh, we love to have a little bit of internal competition about who's absorbing the most, you know, especially coming out of a hole we were in. So, so uh, can I, I, I think, yeah. Can I interject ahead. just for a quick second and, and for Kim and Ward and maybe Steven, 
from for context, you know, for the that level, I think 11.9 million square feet for the DFW area. Where were we? I mean, roughly, where were we five or 10 years ago? Is that is that like 5X, 10X, Ford? If you want to let me take this, um, Kim and Steven, I've because I live in Dallas, I know, I mean, I like to think that Dallas has been basically having 25 to 35 million square feet under construction um, for the last five, six years or something. And then we're absorbing plus or minus 20 million each year. So now if the numbers like that we're thinking are going to happen at mid-year, then we might be at 20 million at mid-year. So it's like double normal um, at the pace we're going right now wow. if it keeps up. and. Yeah that it's insane. So, and it's, it already was insane, be, like at 20 million every year and just consistently like, and sometimes it was more, sometimes a little less, but that that's about it. And it's, um, so anyway, that's, that's my, thank you. I think the, the interesting thing from our standpoint is a public read, we're doing a lot of forecasting of what, so what's next, if you would. And I think the interesting thing about the Dallas Metro has been, this volume has been huge for a long time. In fact, you know, when developers say, oh, geez, so it's like 7% vacancy, why are you building? That's kind of normal with that kind of uh, continuous uh, supply mm. coming into the market. Versus if you have that in uh, a smaller market, call it Denver or, or Reno, you know, you're kind of nervous about putting spec into the equation. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I misstated earlier when I said, uh, you know, Houston was that 11 okay. million. Houston was about 3.8, 3.8 okay. million. But Dallas it, is 3.8? That's versus like... No, 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 no. Okay, Reverse. okay, got it. Houston is yeah, 3.8. Yeah, yeah. Dallas, Dallas is the higher number at 11.9. So uh, that's sort of some perspective, though, on where Houston was versus where Dallas is today. But I was going to point out this point of uh, that continuous supply has an effect on rent change. And this is sort of a segue for maybe what I was going to talk yeah, about please. was the Inland Empire. Oh. The Inland Empire has suddenly got this extraordinary uh, supply constraint phenomena going on with California regulations, Southern California air quality regulations, pushback from the communities on the issues of traffic, on uh, 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 enrichment or the socio-political component, components of where these warehouse and distribution centers are being located. So you have moratoriums uh, everywhere. You've got moratoriums going to city council meetings as late as last night, the city of Upland went through one and fortunately didn't pass it but it's on the docket for discussion. And there might be 15, 20 different communities in the Southern California you know, metro area, seriously considering really reducing uh, or making it difficult to build spec and not have to go through a conditional use permit to get an occupancy. Mm. So those are, those are big impediments with regard to the supply side. So rent change is off the charts in the Inland Empire. The interesting thing at the end of the year, Ward, is for us to compare rent change in the Inland Empire vis-a-vis -vis Dallas because of that supply phenomenon. And in, in, the, in the case of Inland Empire, it's just harder and harder to put product up in a community uh, without you know, substantial impediments or delays or yeah. uh, time frame. So anyway, we look at that issue when we're looking at our markets and their strength to determine where ought we be investing and where should we put stuff into the pipeline? And I think uh, the other phenomenon, having worked in Dallas myself, is the time from when you buy a piece of land to when you pull a building permit and start construction is a little shorter window. Yeah. In the Inland Empire, you know, I've spent seven years on one project, you know, four and a half years on another, wow. and and in uh, kind of the third year of a major project right now, just breaking ground today. So it's. It's an interesting bit of friction associated with our business. And it's not just here. It's just all throughout right. the U.S. This has become an increasing impediment to uh, you know, supply. It's really interesting, Ward, because you know a lot of our listeners are not in real estate, or at least not directly. So I think hearing this perspective uh, is very intriguing. But, uh, Ward, I want to get Stephen's take uh, yeah. from that labor market update, because I think there's a ton of intriguing uh, dynamics taking place there as well, right? Right. Um, yeah, so say, Stephen, I mean, um, all of this activities happening, all these warehouses are being built and then the space is being absorbed and then to operate these facilities, especially the e-commerce facilities, which is, I think, accounting for a huge portion of all this growth, require lots of 
bodies in there uh, to do the work. And I mean, like thousand people sometimes in one distribution center or um, numbers like that. So what are you seeing um, in the labor market? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to go a day now without seeing a headline about the the tightness of, of the labor market. And, and if you talk to our customers and surveyed our customers, which we do well before the pandemic, there were huge labor constraints and it was a real challenge for them. That was certainly heightened during the pandemic. And as we're coming out of that, um, you're seeing the same type of labor constraints. And it is across all markets. There are some markets that are more challenging than others, but really across the U.S., um, you're having these kind of labor availability issues. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, fundamentally, the sector is just growing very fast, right? The broader economy is shifting, uh, greater demands in e-commerce, which puts a lot of, of need across supply chains, which means you need more logistics talent. Um, and, you know, as an example, an e-commerce facility takes 3x the labor of any other kind of traditional distribution network. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of people. And you can see some of the largest cut, you know, brands in the world, they're hiring not, you know, 5,000 people, they're hiring hundreds of thousands of people in a 12 month period. And so labor markets just don't adapt quickly. They, they move very slowly. So as you see a shift between maybe traditional retail into e-commerce, the labor force doesn't necessarily transition in the same period of time as the private sector is going to. Uh, and that puts these, these constraints. The other thing I would add to, and I think this is important is, the industry is not really well understood. People don't know what goes on inside of a warehouse oh, or distribution facility. And so it's not perceived as, as a quality job, even though the wages are greater than traditional retail, stable schedules, things like that. There's a lot of real value to these jobs, but uh, an average person doesn't know what's happening inside. So there's a lot of community education that's certainly required and engagement with the public sector uh, to make sure that people really understand the economic opportunity that that lies in these buildings. That's an excellent point. And, and that's where that's some of the good news, I think, over the last two years, because if you find it you can, or you go look for it, you can find it, is the awareness gains, right? The consumer is continuing to make strides from, a, you know, how did that stuff get, how did that, those things get on my porch two days later? And better yet, how can I return it seamlessly and get credited, you know, within days? I mean, it really it's fascinating uh, the people that make, you know, that, that have allowed global business to move forward, protecting the psyche of consumers during this, 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 um, these um, uh, pandemic times. So for the sake of time, uh, I, I want to move forward into some of these impediments that uh, we've been talking about earlier, uh, but Stephen, I don't want to, anything else from a labor, any, any other points from a labor market update that, that our listeners should know? No, I, I'll talk about it a little bit, you know, kind of some of the solutions that Prologis is bringing to bear and how we're trying to address that specifically with our customers. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, Maybe I could interject yeah, something here. It's interesting in that uh, a lot of young kids in the workforce for the first time, you know, graduate from college for high school in the last two years. Think about what they faced in terms of what do I do? You know, there's no retail opportunities, even certain, you know, restaurant and hospitality opportunities that might have been available to that, that uh, group weren't there. So one of the things that we've been uh, working on, uh, Stephen and I, is trying to, what about logistics? Think about these careers. Think about all the things that go on in these buildings and spend a fair amount of time and energy recruiting people to take a look at this industry as an opportunity alternative to uh, brick and mortar or an alternative uh, to fast food. And, uh, and I think there are some people who just aren't ready to go to college. That's a perfect opportunity to uh, educate them as to what we do. But then people, even out of college, you'd be shocked if you start profiling the typical e-commerce building in terms of the type of jobs in a building that range from the front line, uh, the warehouse worker, to the sales operations, to the uh, engineering and uh, computational elements of statistical analysis mm. on supply chain is huge. That's a math job. And the forecasting and all of the uh, technology that goes with running one of these warehouses, you know, so you have jobs that range from, you know, uh, $50,000 a year to $250,000 a year type of wages in a single building. And that's its own ecosystem that we need to educate people about. What is it about? How does that work? How do we get younger people and more people broadly into that arena with an understanding of what those great opportunities look like? I love that. Right, one more thing on that note is if you talk to CEOs of the largest 3PLs in the world, I'd say 90% of them 
drove a forklift. I mean, they were in the warehouse. They started from the ground up. You, it's, I don't see, I mean, I'd see like so much value in starting that way. UPS is like famous for their model, like drivers becoming CEO of UPS. And I mean, to understand that logistics business, you've got to start on the ground floor. It's like any other job, but that ground floor is just like a, maybe a little dirtier than some other jobs where you just sit in a nice office in a cubicle. But um, like, I, I think there's so much upside there and there's so many incredible humans I've met in the logistics space, um, particularly that started that way. And now they're CEOs, and they own companies. I know people that sell their companies for a billion dollars. I love that. I wouldn't say dirtier ward. I would say more hands-on. Yeah. Right. Because I think dirtier is not our building. That's not our building. But yeah, I, I think that's right. And you know, I'm I'm not the most PC guy. But no, 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 no. I'm just I'm giving you a hard time more than anything else, Ward. But I think you, all of y'all are speaking to you know we can't recruit like it's 1982, right? We got to act like it's 2030, and we also can't. Um, we've got to embrace those those awareness gaps out there. And it's not just logistics, manufacturing, and some other things, Kim. That was a commercial about why it's cool to work in supply chain because the industry, global industry, holistically is competing against uh, for the top talent, and they have to in a way that maybe it's first time in history. So, a lot of good things there, and a lot of good news there, and and we all have our job, big jobs to do uh, to get out there and get the good word out. So, with that said, uh, I hate to move back into some bad news, but we're, we're we've identified, at least learning from Kim and Stephen, some of the key impediments that is is at least temporarily blocking or, or, or pulling us back. And I think there's three in particular, and we're going to talk about truck availability, labor availability, and regulatory, and just the political environment we're in. So Kim, I'll start with you. Let's talk about truck availability. What, what are you seeing there? Well, there's, there's truck availability, then there's trucker availability. And I think, uh, you know, truck availability, in my mind, I think of uh, electric vehicles. One of the, the Incredible things going on in Southern California is a new regulation called the indirect source rule, uh, rule 2305 that was recently passed that requires uh, all operators of warehouses to keep track of truck trips, classification of vehicles, age of vehicles, et cetera, to determine based on a coefficient of emissions, what their impact is on the air quality. Uh, and then if you don't mitigate that, you owe the uh, AQMB a, a fee. So one of the big mitigators is to use electric vehicles in some capacity. Most of the electric vans that a lot of the uh, uh, transportation depots are using are spoken for. So there might be a backlog of two, three years to get a significant quantity of those. So they're, they're spoken for. On the uh, large vehicles, the class eights, the over the road, uh, longer haul, uh, I think we counted up, there's like six of them and uh, they're just not, readily available yet. They have very short travel distance issues. It's in the most early stage of development to actually deliver those long haul vehicles on an electric basis. I've heard somebody say in that arena, you know, you got two options in the electric uh, truck fleet is like, you can either haul batteries or you can haul freight <laughs> because the weight associated with running a major vehicle is so significant that you now you've you hit a maximum vehicle load issue in most of you know California with regard to traveling across uh, the highway system. So it, it's a challenging issue. The other factor I mentioned was trucker. Uh, there's just a uh, it's it's a cohort of worker that isn't replenishing itself. In fact, uh, they're becoming fewer and fewer, older and older. And there's some horrible statistics about you know the health and welfare of uh, truck driving uh, in general that aren't, are a little bleak. So there needs to be some strategies, whether it's technology, it's autonomous, it's some other uh, technique and uh, uh, to, to get more truckers uh, working in safe conditions and uh, being available. So that, that's a huge issue right now in terms of the transportation of goods. Agreed, Kim. And Stephen, you're, you're shaking, you're nodding your head as well. Your thoughts here? Yeah, you know, on the actual trucks themselves, as Kim mentioned, right, there's a lot of push. Everybody's very interested in electric vehicles. Um, the availability is not at scale yet. I think it's going to come soon, right? We're seeing uh, large manufacturers get ready for this, um, but there's a lot of complications there. Um, and you're seeing these rules come out, which are very interesting. Um, you know, we're all obviously very interested in climate change. We want to make sure that we're being, you know, environmental stewards. Um, but the, the electric grid must also be ready for that. 
Uh, and in states across the country, the electric grid is not ready for electric vehicles. Um, so you're talking about a 10x increase in consumption um, for states who are already struggling with grid uh, capacity. Um, so those are real concerns that uh, companies have to think about too, right? You can't electrify your fleet and then not be sure that you're going to be able to power them at night. Um, and I think that's a complicating factor there. Uh, and then again, for the long haul, um, the technology is just not quite there. Um, and I think the, the, the major manufacturers are still trying to figure out what's the best uh, approach there. On the, the, the driver side, it, it's really interesting. I was talking to Kim earlier and I used to run a, a CDL training school. So I'm very familiar with this. It's one CDL training is expensive. Training people to be truck drivers is not cheap because you can't train lots of them very quickly. As a school, you must own um, your heavy duty trucks. You have huge liability issues. And so the main training providers in the US, community colleges, don't have truck driving training programs, generally speaking. They can't get the liability insurance, they can't afford the programs, and so there's not production there. The second thing that we're seeing though, and I think this is, this is interesting, is there's this perception that autonomous vehicles are here five years from now and all truck drivers are going to be unemployed. That's not realistic, that's not how this transition is going to happen. Um, but it's stopping public sector investment and interest into training folks for the industry, despite the fact that these are very high paid, you know, uh, middle class supporting jobs. Um, but the public sector isn't necessarily investing in that training and development because of this, this false belief that there's going to be wide, widespread job loss. And it's just not based on it. Stephen, that's an excellent point. And, and Warren, I'll come to you. And I mean, we've talked about our, our uh, beloved truck drivers and, and a lot of things that Kim and Stephen are talking to. I know it's a passion of yours. What, what, what's your take here? Well, I was going to say the other shortage is truck parking spaces. And I think that actually contributes to the trucker shortage. Because if you're a trucker and you go out on the road and you need to park your truck for the night and there's no parking spaces, then some truckers are having to go park in abandoned lots or on the side of the streets and neighborhoods. They're getting... Um, the, I've heard stories from truck driver friends of mine getting the cabs of their trucks shaken by, um, by pimps, by drug dealers. It is, there's some tough things out there on the road. There needs to be more truck parking. There's a federal law that's been passed called Jason's Law that's going to provide federal funding to be used at the state's discretionary funding to, uh, to help with that. But I mean, I think that's something that needs to happen. There needs to be safe, secure places for these truck drivers to park. And uh, right now, the way that it's set up, I just think it it makes the job, I'm not going to say dirty again, but it makes it very tough. And it does pay, I think, incredible wages, but um, it's not an easy life out there, especially for the long haul truckers mm -hmm. that are living on the road. And um, our teams, actually, we've been spending a lot of time lately interviewing truck drivers to find this out so that we can understand these trends a little better. And I mean, I'll tell you, I get emotional on these phone calls when I hear the stories out there. So mm -hmm. I think truck parking is something that's really simple. It's fairly low cost, um, but at the same time, while, our, while I think it will benefit the public good, our communities don't want big truck lots with big trucks parked everywhere. And, um, and then they're not the most profitable way to use industrial land either without building a warehouse on them. So it's, we're all in kind of a conundrum here. So I'm hopeful the federal government will continue to pay attention because this is something that I think would really benefit the public good and help all the trucking companies with driver recruiting and retention and keep truckers safe out on the road. It's such a big equation. It's like one of those, uh, those movie scenes where you walk into the classroom and the professor's got a, a chalk equation with a thousand different components on the, that fills up a full wall. There's so many different elements and, and, and levers at, at play here. But um, first step is to understand it better. And, and Ward, I love what you're doing and talking with truck drivers. We'll have to set tee up another uh, podcast straight from the trucking professionals in, in the uh, weeks to come. Okay. Now we were already, we were talking about labor earlier. I know that's a second big impediment. I want to circle back around to Kim beyond what you've already shared from a, um, you know, how labor plays uh, that speed bump effect here. What else would you share here when it comes to looking at the impediments that are that are slowing us down a little bit? Well, in the kind of opening, we talked a little bit about sort of the evolution. Uh, what you, what you knew as the industry, uh, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, compared to today. And I think 
I don't know that I've encountered this degree of uh, customer pain. Our, our tenants' pain points uh, often revolve around this labor availability. And so when they're making real estate location decisions, the first thing they do is look at the labor availability uh, in that particular location. They look at the location as a whole and having its amenities and all that stuff, but that's sort of uh, to support their labor because it's expensive when you have a lot of uh, attrition. You have people leaving uh, you know, to go make another 25 cents an hour. So a lot of companies have said, enough of this. We're going to raise our rates. We're going to pay people more and fairly. We're going to make it uh, a good place to work. And I think, uh, uh, but that starts with having a pool of labor and talent to draw upon. Right. So we've tried to figure out, you know, what can we do to facilitate that? One, we make a lot of that information available. We also, when we're doing site selection for a ground up development or uh, any kind of uh, real estate investment, we're looking at that same thing. What would our customer need to see here? And are we in the right spot to deliver that ultimately? Because we like long-term ownership. We like long-term continuity of uh, tenancy. And that only comes with a good stable labor force that's available, that's replenishable, et cetera. Good community college system, college system, et cetera. And uh, uh, kind of awareness of this issue. So, you know, and and to that extent, uh, you know, we've started down this path of really looking at community workforce scenarios that uh, Stephen and I have partnered on uh, doing this in a number of locations now. But it's imperative to understand your labor scenario as one of the major resources you examine when you make a real estate decision, whether you're a tenant or you're a real estate developer like us. Stephen, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, we're we're taking a direct leadership position here. We have a unique vantage point uh, as a firm and given the number of customers we have and the geographies that we operate in. So we launched uh, our community workforce initiative. So we set a target that we want to train and upskill 25,000 folks by the end of 2025 for the logistics sector. Uh, And we've launched these programs across the country. By the end of the year, we'll be in 15 different cities. Um, We actually launched in the UK and and we're examining Mexico right now as well. Um, And the key there, again, is how do you bring the private sector and the the public sector together? Uh, So we make investments in community colleges, workforce investment boards, nonprofits, um, to make them uh, focus on the logistics sector and also provide our expertise to say, these are the career pathways. These are the employers that are hiring. These are the types of skills that people need to have. In fact, we even developed a curriculum. We we developed a a fully online curriculum that everybody can access for free. Um, And that's what folks are being trained on. So we're doing what we can uh, to, again, raise the awareness of the sector, get it to be a priority, uh, and really make sure our customers have access to that as well, right? Ultimately, we're doing this for our customers because we know this is their number one pain point. Uh, and, you know, our business, we're here for the long term. We're not in communities for the short term. We're in Dallas forever. Uh, we're in Miami forever. Uh, and we need to know those communities. Uh, and, and that's why we, you know, we're really making these investments and working with stakeholders. I love it. And I love what you're creating and how you're investing and how you're providing those resources to the, the markets. Um, and we're going to share at the end of today's episode, how, how you can connect with Kim, Stephen and Ward. And uh, Stephen, you welcome folks that want to are curious about that curriculum. You'd welcome those inquiries, right? Yeah, absolutely. Please okay. reach out. Wonderful. Okay. we got to move right along. we got a lot more good stuff to talk about, including one of my favorite topics, which is leadership, real leadership, which is coming next after uh, Kim tells us more about this, this, uh, the third impediment, third of three, this regulatory, political, very difficult, and sometimes nasty environment that we're in. Uh, Kim, tell us more about that. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, uh, success uh, breeds contempt <laughs> sometimes. And it's interesting how the logistics sector is, is popping right now. It's just, uh, it's, going very strongly in every community. And it draws a little bit of attention because you've got uh, the issue of trucking and, and traffic congestion. You got the issue of air quality, which we talked about earlier. And uh, you just have sort of that nimbyism that in, inevitably occurs where uh, people would rather not, they don't mind, they know they need logistics, they know they need warehouse and distribution, just not it's not in my neighborhood if, if that's mm. possible. Can we just do it in your neighborhood instead? <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, it's a fundamental problem with, with uh, you know, these, these big buildings in particular and the traffic they create, you know, we keep advocating about what the job gains are and the community enrichment from that standpoint, the tax impacts are huge. You know, the economic benefit in the overall package 
of uh, an e-commerce fulfillment center in a community is massive. But it does come with sort of this balance of traffic, maybe air quality, depending on the operator and how they run their business. Uh, but what I guess I'm getting at is uh, this goes back to this education of all the good things that we do. Uh, then where you hear about all the negative things that are associated with the good things we're doing, we're trying to find this nice balancing act here. Uh, but what it manifests in, in states like California, the Republic of California is pretty aggressive and progressive with regard to telling what, telling you what you ought to do, right? As opposed to allowing business to do it on their own, invest in their own uh, sustainability practices, uh, goodwill uh, community uh, activities that they do. Uh, California has a tendency to want to legislate that. So, you know, we live here, it's a fantastic environment. You know, it's a great place to do business uh, if you can uh, figure out a way to digest all these regulatory elements. So I think it's it's not necessarily a horrible problem. It's a problem we all have to adapt to. It's a pretty level playing field. They're not picking on, uh, you know, you know, big landlords versus small landlords. It's all landlords are affected by this. So we're all working as a group. You know, I'm a, a involved with the NEIOP. We do a, an awful lot of outreach to communities to try to explain the good things we do, understanding that we need to do better on the other things. And I think uh, that's a, a big focus. But I, I would just say we're in a cycle, a political cycle of regulation. So there's a lot more coming, <laughs> you know, potentially in the tax arena uh, that we'll, we'll all be having to digest that at some point. And uh, so I think we're sort of in a period of massive change from the regulatory standpoint from the prior four years. So uh, maybe it's just, uh, again, part of that snapback I was talking about earlier. We got a little snapback that might sting a little too. So we got we to gotta weave that into our, our business models going forward and continue to be very uh, forthright as to who we are, what we're doing, the, all the good things that we're trying to do, the communities. You know, I, I'm just a huge fan of this concept of community engagement. You know, that uh, Stephen mentioned about uh, Dallas and Miami. We're there forever. That's how Prologis plays the real estate game. We go into a community, we create a series of clusters that become its own ecosystem, and we're there for the long haul. We're not waiting until it's stabilized and selling it to uh, somebody else. We, we hold for long term. That means we're there in the community. We get involved. We have our people get involved in volunteerism constantly to show that, you know, you can rely upon us. You, we're a trusted advisor to the community at times where we're helping them think uh, uh, long term as well. Uh, that's the way we like to operate. And I think our people are, are like-minded. They embrace that concept of if we're going to work here in Los Angeles, we have to embrace this community and take good care of it because it takes good care of us. And that's, that's sort of the fundamental. Equation. I love that. And, and Stephen, I will get your last thoughts here around this current environment and the word you can lead us into the more of a, a leadership discussion here. So, but Stephen, uh, speak to the environment a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think Kim hit on it. It's a very tough environment. There's a lot of regulation that's coming out that's not informed by business realities. Um, and also I think there's just a lack of, of, of engagement uh, with the private sector here to understand the realities, right? Logistics is not, uh, you know, an extremely profitable business. Um, our, you know, our customers aren't rolling in the dough. Um, it's it's a tough business uh, and it's hard. Um, but as you think about, you know, the, the nimbyism, the further that you push logistics facilities out, the less likely it is that somebody can work at that building, right? Population centers uh, and and job opportunities have to somewhat align. Uh, in order for there to be uh, effective economies. And so that that's key. Um, but I would say to the listeners is you, you better get engaged. Um, you better start getting engaged because it's happening at the local level, it's happening at the state level, and it's happening at the federal level. Show up, um, start talking to your local chambers of commerce, your local NAOPs, uh, whoever it is that, that represents you, uh, and get engaged because it's important that the public sector hears from you. I love that. And word before I toss over to you, uh, Stephen's last few comments there reminded me of a previous guest here, Sherika Sanders, PhD, former, uh, basically a NASA engineer, a uh, big part of the uh, efforts to identify what, what happened wrong with the Columbia disaster. And uh, we get asked all the time, how can I advance in my career and, and, and how can I uh, succeed and all that stuff? And her, her advice was simple, do the work. 
do the work and it became a mantra. And that's a lot of what Steven's saying, Hey, get involved, do it. You know, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't talk about it, you know, plug in. So, okay. So that's a, I think that's a great segue because I think the leaders that are the most successful are those that do lead by example. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about next are some, uh, a variety of things that, that Kim and Steven are seeing organizations that are succeeding are doing right. Ward. That's right, Scott. And uh, I mean, I think we were talking, Kim, about your local boots on the ground and you're here to stay in Dallas. Um, I'm, I'm happy about that because I love doing business with Prologis. My customers love doing business with Prologis. You make it easy for us to do our jobs, even in this challenging environment where there's massive, um, you know, lack of supply, low vacancy rates, skyrocketing rents. Um, and I know I, this culture um, is amazing to me how, how you keep this culture with becoming such a global um, behemoth of a company, um, yet you're still so in touch with these local markets. So I'd love to hear, you know, leadership style in today's environment. And uh, maybe we can just start with uh, that Prologis culture that I know like everyone, uh, like somebody walking down the street may not know the name Prologis, but when you're in the commercial real estate business, especially industrial, it's a household name. And uh, like, and I would love to hear what the secret sauce is to your culture. Well, uh, why don't I start? Because uh, I think this is something that I can completely relate to here. And uh, why I've been with this firm for over 16 years is this concept of customer centricity. We mm. make that the most important thing. And it's such a great rallying call for everyone in our organization. And we drive and attract and keep people who think about the customer first. Our customers are tenant. We, and our other customers are our brokers. And the two are mixed together. We need to take really good care of our customers to be sustainable and to fulfill those long-term objectives I referred to. And I think in how you do that is you make that customer the priority. You keep track of them. You check in with them. We introduce this concept of a care visit. You know, we really care. Let's go talk to our customer at least once a quarter. How you doing? Is there anything we can do for you? Is there anything we drop the ball on? How can we fix it? And can we fix it right now? And taking a sort of a proactive approach with our, our customer management has been a huge part of that cultural piece. But then, you know, then there's this listening, listening to our people and our field teams and what the feedback they give us. What do they say about those customer visits? What do they say about their workload? What do they say about me begging them to come back to the office and work in an office again? How do they feel about that? It sounds a little puffy, but you know the reality is that's, that's what we need to understand is what are our people feeling? What are their pain points? We talked about pain points for customers, but keeping an employee engaged comes with listening to them and responding to them. And then as important is adapting and adjusting a little bit here and there. So we have to be flexible. And I think in particularly in the stage of kind of post pandemic, uh, we're all still figuring out what that's going to look like here in a year. Uh, getting people back into the office environment. You know, some people may not come back. Some people may say, you know, I can do this job three days a week from the office, two days at home. We got every scenario working. And I think all companies in the U.S. are going through the same thing. Uh, but what's really important, and I, and I want to stress this, is that uh, that listening. You need to pay attention. So what do we do about that? Internally, we do little pulse surveys, how people feel. And we have town hall meetings to sort of engage people and just get that candid feedback. And I think what we found is when we get our, our teams just telling the truth comfortably, speak up comfortably, raise an objection and say, this may not be very popular, but I don't like this. And is there any way we could do it differently? And then, you know, as important as listening is, is actually responding to it, acknowledging those objections, trying to do something about it and keep improving. So, you know, one last part of my big commercial here on the culture is that, uh, you know, this business of innovation, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, devices and tools and software. It's innovating how we manage our people slightly different in a new environment none of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. You know, a post-pandemic environment is new for everybody. So we're 
trying to uh, make adaptations and adjust and be flexible, be smart about it. We still have to earn a living. We have shareholders who demand that uh, we pay attention to the bottom line. But then find that middle ground of keeping the best employees, making sure we uh, recruit more employees and keep them for long periods of time. That That is sort of, I think, the, the measure of success from a cultural standpoint. If you have less than 10% attrition, you're doing pretty good. If you have less than four, you're doing great. And if you're finding people fighting to come work to your, your, your company, you're doing fantastic. So I think that's how we sort of look at all this and try to keep that going, keep that momentum. And that's amazing, Kim. And, it, you know, something uh, that I've got to bring up and I, I'm going to speak on the perspective, my perspective of being in the industrial real estate business for 15 years. But if you go to an industrial real estate conference, there's a lot of white males in the room and there's a very, uh, there's a big lack of diversity in the industrial real estate sector as a whole. And um, I know that's something that we're doing at Colliers to make a big effort and a big push to um, recruit um, new diverse recruits. Um, and I mean, I'm in the process of recruiting new teammates right now. And that's something that we're really looking for. Um, not, not to meet some quota or something, but to get new perspectives. Like I want new perspectives. I want to see through different people's eyes and that's going to make us better when it comes to listening to our customers, because different people from different backgrounds are going to hear things differently. And I think it all goes with your customer centricity. Um, but I, Stephen, do you want to maybe take this and uh, let us know what you guys have been doing in terms of uh, contributing to the diversity at Prologis? Yeah, I mean, this is a top priority for Prologis, and it has been for quite a while now. I mean, it, and you hit on it. It is it is an industry that's dominated by white men, uh, and it's not an easy thing to change. It takes time to build out programs, systems, investments uh, to do it the right way. Um but it's also about, uh, you know, take leadership position. And if you look at what Prologis is doing, um, we're putting our money where our mouth is uh, and we're making meaningful changes to how we recruit. We're making meaningful changes to how we think about inclusion uh, and, and diversity across the board. Uh, we're thinking about how do we apply it to, you know, our basic management and, and, and leadership standards. Um, and that's been that's been and I actually, you know, I know you pointed to me, but Kim within the project world has been a leader here um, and has been driving this organization forward for a long time um, to push uh, investments into these programs. And um, whether that's that's focusing on on bringing more women into the workplace, um, recruiting uh, new college grads from uh, HBCUs or other universities, um, there's an opportunity there for, I think, the broader sector to do that. But Kim has seen it all, uh, so I'd love to hear yeah. this. Well, let's hear your perspective, Kim. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, what a good intro. I'm, I'm glad I went to you first, Stephen, so you give us a little background, because I know Kim wouldn't have told us all that up front, but I'd love to hear about your initiative. Well, sure. I mean, uh, we have a lot of initiatives, whether it's uh, women in the workplace. You know, you mentioned white men. Uh, it's amazing what it does to your organization when you have more than half of your uh, staff is female. It's different. You know, having worked in an all-male company, yeah, and and in my current uh, staff is about fifty-three percent female. It's yeah. different. It's, I think it's better because it's balanced. It's got different, you know, perspectives, and that's that's also uh, true with regard to ethnicity and background and you know country of origin. And that diversity breeds a more holistic thought process from different perspectives that I think ultimately allows us to make better decisions, better investments, and, and have better behavior in a community. When you go into a, uh, a big community meeting uh, to present a project and you got a staff of the entire set of departments at the city of Los Angeles, and you look around the room and do you, is your team similar looking to those people you're presenting to? If they are, there's this different kind of chemistry that takes place that is often advantageous, or at least it's everybody's understanding each other. If, if that's the outcome, that's also a win. So uh, I guess we think it's really important and you gotta, you gotta put your money where your mouth is. You gotta walk the walk. You can't just talk about this stuff. And as, as Stephen pointed out, it's a long game. This doesn't just transition overnight. You know? So we've started a number of programs. 
Uh, we really advocate uh, women in the workplace. We are big, you know, proponents of, uh, you know, crew as a, you know, national sponsor for that. I met, uh, mentioned earlier my involvement with NAIOP. We started this uh, NAIOP ProLogis uh, uh, diversity scholarship that we're actually uh, hosting uh, young people of uh, varying backgrounds to come to an icon event in Los Angeles coming up where every year what we've been doing is having a little essay contest, if you would, uh, to get people of diverse backgrounds to submit some reasons why they'd be a great candidate to come to this program. And uh, so we've been doing that for three or four years now. It's been super successful. We've got alumni from there. We always meet these incredible people that we might not have otherwise met. Mm -hmm. And whether we're looking to hire them, looking to promote them in our industry, uh, but just get them engaged more, uh, you know, uh, significantly in the industry, that's part of this process, you know. So whether it's diverse hiring, it's promoting diversity in the workplace and in these big trade associations, you know, I'm super excited. I'm going to host, you know, I think about 15 of these uh, young people in Long Beach here in about a month and a half. Uh, and we, we celebrate the heck out of them. We make sure they get to meet uh, my peers. I, I grab a few and take them along with me through an entire conference as an example. Again, it's, it's somebody sort of dragging you along, giving you opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise have. You know, we have so many great talented people out there. Uh, what we don't have is so many great opportunities for them. And to the extent that prologists can push uh, that forward a bit, create those opportunities for those people to get more and more exposure. Eventually, they're going to be uh, uh, leading the band in this industry, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So as we start to wrap up a wide ranging conversation here with Kim Snyder and Stephen Hussein with Prologis and, and my dear friend, Ward Richmond, you know, Minda Hartz uh, joined us for a live stream not too long ago. She's the author of The Memo, and she had a great quote that's going to stay in my brain for a long time. We have an obligation as leaders to make work work for everyone, right? All walks of life, uh, all types of whether you work from home, work in the office, hybrid, you name it. You think just of, of the wide variety of ways that can be applied. Well, what I'm hearing here today, especially, especially from the um, real estate, the industrial real estate industry space, um, is we've got to make industry and sectors work for everyone as well and, and do the work and do the work that Kim was just describing and Stephen has described um, that takes real leadership, hands-on leadership. And, and not just it doesn't just take a, um, a process that ensures successful diverse hiring, but then you got, we've got to make everyone feel comfortable uh, and welcome and included in the cultures that we are, uh, create and lead and, and the businesses uh, there within. So a lot of good stuff here. And, and I think, you know, Ward, as we, as we talked pre-show, you know, while a lot of these best practices that we're hearing in this segment of the interview, you know, are illustrated uh, via the prologist culture, this is also, this is what you know, uh, industry leaders are doing, right? A lot of what Kim and, and Stephen are talking to going back, I'd go all the way up upstream to the customer centricity stuff that, that Kim was talking about. That's so important. I mean, there's a reason why the best retailers in the world that know their consumers the best are constantly asking, craving feedback right. so they can continue to tinker with, with how they do things. So a lot of good stuff here today. I, Ward, before we wrap though, innovation, I don't think we've touched on this. And if I zoned out for a second, I apologize. I don't think we've touched on <laughs> That's that. my fault, Scott, because I'm supposed to be the co-host <laughs> that talks about innovation. And I got <laughs> so sidetracked and excited about hearing about the diversity and the culture. And uh, by the way, I, I knew, I've heard this quote before, but since we're doing quotes, I uh, was speaking with uh, one of my advisors this morning and he reminded me of the great Peter Drucker quote that is culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's right. And like, like fruity uh, pebbles. Uh, and, uh, but moving on. And I mean, well, part of it, I think every great company's culture is innovation. So uh, what's happening on the innovation front. And I'm going to go with Kim since I went to Steven last time. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be brief, but I think, you know, we, we realize how important innovation is. Uh, you know, I alluded to this earlier but uh, our employees love innovation. It, it's stimulating, it's enriching, you know, it's not doing things the same old way all the time. It's looking for ways to improve and looking for ways to get better and being a competitive bunch in the real estate business, win, we like winning. So to the extent that we can channel that, that competitiveness to innovation, 
uh, it's it's a good thing. But we also, uh, you know, recently formed a, an entity, you know, a few years back now, uh, the uh, Prologis Ventures, which is really focused on setting aside some capital to go invest in these disruptive technologies that affect our industry, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, how uh, how forklifts or are are designed, uh, flexible by the pallet uh, rental streams, you know, for uh, using Flexi as an example, uh, looking at uh, technology for uh, gate management or yard management systems. Yeah. Uh, that's been a fascinating thing that I've jumped into here recently in terms of looking at not only issues of compliance on those truck trips I alluded to earlier, but also having that information available for yard security or uh, yard efficiency, uh, communication between the driver and the uh, dispatch operator at a large warehouse and distribution center, having that interaction improved and then recorded and have that data later in the month to reflect on. And how can we do things differently? Understanding uh, the flow of uh, materials coming and going through the gate. Simple things like that. We also have in, incorporated some sensor array uh, information uh, gathering uh, devices inside the building. In effect, heat mapping, where are the areas of congestion, where are the areas of constant or areas where there is no traffic? And ought we be locating our material in those spots that are here for six months rather than having them out front to tr you know, make travel time inside a warehouse? So all of these things is a, a mishmash of uh, unique things we've been working on, trying to pay attention to what's going on out there from a technological standpoint and how it ties in, I think, to labor is when there's labor uh, enrichment with tools like this, the precious labor that you have can do more things and they also learn more skills, which is also good for retention as well. So there's a lot of good about having innovation as part of your overall culture. That's great. That's great. So Stephen, what else would you add to what Kim just shared? Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you look at, at Prologis, there's, there's truly a culture of innovation and that comes from the top. There's a, a clear mandate to try new things and to be comfortable with learning because not everything is going to go right. It comes from the top that, that you have to continue to push. You have to continue to learn. Be thinking about what's going to happen three months from now. Be thinking about what's going to happen for years from now. Um, and, and it's important for an industry that is changing this fast to be looking ahead. And again, I think it, I think it truly comes from the top at Prologis to say, yeah, we're going to do this. Uh, everybody get on board uh, and get comfortable with, with making mistakes um, and, and then just continuing to push. Love that Steven and Kim, thank you both for sharing. And, and war before we, we kind of go around the horn, make sure everybody knows how to connect uh, with our panel here, your final word on innovation. Well, I, I you know what, I, I wanted to ask a question and not give a word, but, um, and I, I don't know who's <laughs> best to answer this, but <laughs> tell me about innovation in terms of green building initiatives, solar panel, electric for the future, electric trucks. Like uh, what are you, are you guys doing anything on your spec buildings um, to try to, you know, um, make, I mean, I just think these, these regulations are going to continue. I think they, they need to continue to a, a certain degree um, with everything that's happening with this amount of construction. So what's Prologis doing to be proactive about that? Yeah, I think if, if you look at us now, uh, Prologis is the leader in solar. So we're the third largest on-site solar installer in the U.S., only behind Walmart and Target. Uh, and we have been the leader and we will continue to lead in that space. Uh, when it comes to electrification, our teams are already doing the work uh, to begin to prepare for that transition, what it's going to look like, including on the regulatory side. So how are we going to engage with utilities, uh, state boards, the federal government to think about infrastructure uh, and how that will be deployed at scale? Uh, and we've always been a leader when it comes to building designs. And, and, um, and you know, I think we, we benefit, and Kim can certainly speak to this as well, from being an international company. We operate in countries where these are not new technologies. These are things that are big, baked into the standards. Uh, and because we have that kind of global purview, you know, we can always stay ahead of what's next. Uh, and I think yeah. that's a really unique piece of our, our portfolio that nobody else can compare to you know we focus on that uh, learning that we do globally you know we we learn from our friends in uh, japan and asia with regard to multi-story warehouses and how to do those efficiently 
and built a speculative three-story building in Seattle a couple of years ago, you maybe recall. Um, we've, we've learned from our friends in the Netherlands about water conservation and how to recycle all water and reuse it and really reduce the demand of, of fuel on the water. It's a fascinating set of techniques. Using uh, wind power and solar in a combination. You need a windy place to do this, but there are places and they do apply in certain parts of the US. So the, the guess point I'm making is we, we use a best practices approach to what's working here. How is it similar to where we are today? What can we adapt and apply here to actually keep improving and get the most sustainable environmental condition that we can for all of our buildings? But then what's also uh, that feedback? Uh, it goes back to this customer. When our tenants see this as a really neat thing, they want to know what we're doing too. They want to know if we're actually preparing the roof in advance for the weight of a solar array. We're doing That's that, right. of course, right? If you don't do that, you got some retrofit issues on putting that stuff up there. Uh, are you running cabling uh, or conduits under the slabs, under the parking lots, out to the guard shack, just in case you might want to have a, a, a Cat5 cable to run to and fro to be able to create uh, access to information that wouldn't otherwise be available. And that too is sustainable rather than tear it up after the fact. And we have gone through every, every new project that's in the urban environment involves some form of demo is figuring out strategies to be uh, particularly sensitive to uh, reusability of materials uh, as materials are getting increasingly dear as we've seen uh, this year got to have that as part of your equation. So again, it's a, a fundamental practice of learning from across the planet, uh, reusing materials, finding those best practices that can be shared and, and applied in different locations than they had in the past. Love that. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So much, so much good stuff here from this episode. Uh, I expect, I fully expect, I'll be disappointed if, if it's anything less that your inboxes are, are filled up with inquiries from social media to your email, you name it, uh, the team over at Prologis. But if anyone can handle that degree, that, that level of inbound traffic, I am sure Prologis. Hey, if, I was, if I was a uh, real estate developer just starting out I, and listen to this podcast, I'd be ready to rock, I think. So you guys just <laughs> dropped so much knowledge on us. Really appreciate it. All right. And Ward knows how to rock, by the way. He is a hey. talented rock musician. More on that uh, in a later episode. But uh, Kim and Stephen, let's make sure folks know how to connect with you. I really appreciate uh, the time you spent here. You know, it's a great uh, kind of second installment, installment of this uh, reinvigorated supply chain real estate series. So, Kim, let's start with you. How can folks connect with you and the ProLogist team? Sure. Well, uh, you know, we, we have a, a pretty interactive website, uh, ProLogist.com. Uh, all of us are registered on there uh, by name and location, and uh, we're easy to find. And areas of interest that you might have at that uh, website can sort of also target where these people are who might be able to answer questions like that. Uh, we also have a pretty significant uh, communications department, uh, a, a PR section. We've got uh, shareholder relations, et cetera, all of that. So well, how these things impact you know, more broadly than just the straight real estate deal or some of the cultural things. We've, we've got a big uh, map in there that will give you a, a ability to contact just about anybody. But, uh, and then obviously, uh, you know, our, uh, our email format is, uh, is pretty active. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, uh, you know, Instagram. I'm on hey, Facebook. You can find me just about anywhere. Uh, we're all kind of working to communicate effectively uh, for our industry and for our company. So to the extent, uh, I think you'll be able to find us. Wonderful. Uh, Steven, anything to add to that? That is a very holistic answer to that question, Kim. I'm impressed. Yeah, he, he nailed Steven. it. Uh, yeah. Reach out, reach out on LinkedIn, uh, email me. We'll, we'll respond. <laughs> okay. Cool, cool. Well, this, uh, outstanding conversation, big thanks to Kim and Steven or Bobby remiss though. It's been really neat to see, you, you know, our very first episode was, had a backdrop of in-person event way long before the pandemic and we've come a long way since and really the conversations like this with our friends over at prologis are a great um, testimony to that so but how can folks connect with the wolf the one and only ward richmond thanks for that scott yeah i was thinking it's actually like exactly two years since we met i think in atlanta at the uh the 3pl um summit that we went to yep. so um best way to get a hold of me is uh i have a 
blog called supplychainrealestate.com. So that is a great way. And that has links to all my social media. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm very active on Instagram as well. I know Scott, you and I connect on there a lot. So Instagram at ward214tx. And then you can just uh, Google me. Awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. And if you, if you join me on Instagram, you'll see pictures of my dogs, my kids, <laughs> all kinds of sunsets, sunshines, you name. I'm still figuring out Instagram on my end, but nevertheless, uh, what a how, uh, powerhouse panel here today, ton of really practical best practices really have enjoyed talking with Kim Snyder and Stephen Hussein, both with Prologis. Big thanks to my uh, co-host Ward Richmond. Check him out at supplychainrealestate.com. And to all of our listeners, if you'd like conversations like this, be sure to check us out at supplychainnow.com. You can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. On behalf of our entire team here, Scott Luton signing off for now, challenging you to be like Kim and Stephen and Ward. Hey, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.